0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 256 of our Tick Boot Camp podcast. The title of today's interview is Tree of Life, an interview with Bob Miller. My name is Matt Sabatello. My name is Richard Johanneson. So, if you've ever wondered about genetics and the role it plays in your healing journey, then this is the podcast episode for you. Bob discusses the top genetic deficiencies that are known to cause complications when healing from chronic Lyme disease. He identifies specific tools to help alleviate symptoms immediately but also to go upstream and figure out how to identify solutions to solve the problem and not have to keep putting these band-aids on our symptoms. So without further ado, Bob Miller in Tree of Life.
1: Hello, Bob Miller, traditional naturopath, and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp podcast.
2: My pleasure to be here. It sounds like we're going to have a lot of fun.
1: Uh, we are really looking forward to this uh, podcast interview and and our community should know that uh, you are highly recommended by somebody that we had a wonderful interview with. And at the end of uh, our podcast, we like to ask folks if there's someone they think we should invite to the podcast, because trying to build out what we call the lime quilt. And uh, and this fellow said, you cannot go forward any longer without having um, Robert Miller on your podcast, and that's why we uh, reached out to you and asked you to um, join us, and we want to thank you for doing that. So, so Bob, will you be kind enough to uh, share with our community um, what the name of your business is and what types of work you do uh, in the business that you've developed?
2: Sure. Well, I have a, a small clinic in a little town called Ephrata, Pennsylvania. It's called uh, Tree of Life Health, and uh, we're not a medical facility. We're just, mostly just like glorified health coaches, Um, but we primarily use DNA uh, as our backdrop as to how we understand what's going on with people. So I also started a company called Functional Genomic Analysis, which is um, a genetic test and software for health professionals. Uh, This isn't an online thing that somebody does. Uh, It's only uh, healthcare professionals that can use my software, Uh, but they'll use that software to look at function, and what we mean by that is how you might be making too many free radicals, not making enough antioxidants, detox pathways, not being as robust as they they should be. So those are the two arms. We have our own clinic here, but we also have created software and our own genetic test where we actually train health professionals. And if there's any health professionals watching this, we actually have online training. We have seminars. We have webinars uh, that teaches uh, health professionals how they can use functional genomics to uh, try to bring people back into balance. And that'll, I think, be the crux of our discussion today. You know, why some people have get Lyme and they get over it quickly, others suffer for years. And I think that'll be the the bottom line of what we'll be trying to give people information on in this uh, podcast.
1: So before we dig into your background and where you've come from, I want to read you a quote from uh, Dr. Richard Horowitz's book, How Can I Get Better? I recently uh, reconnected with this book after preparing to interview Dr. Horowitz and in, um, in his book on page uh, four of book of his book, he says, your genetic makeup and even the bacterial populations within the microbiome of your gut is specific to you. These factors affect how you react to infections as well as how you absorb nutrients, detoxify chemicals, create hormones and handle inflammation. Each of us also carries different infection burdens, including bacteria, parasites, viruses, and or fungi, varying levels of inflammation and immune dysfunction, possible food and environmental allergies, different toxic loads, detoxification abilities, hormone levels, and sleep and exercise habits, as well as different levels of cellular and organ damage from previous or underlying infections, in short, your prior and current medical status to determine exactly how Lyme disease will affect your health. Can you begin the podcast by reacting to Dr. Horowitz's observation?
2: Well, that's absolutely brilliant. Okay, Uh, Because one of the things that we've done in the past is we have protocols. Oh, you have this problem, you do this. You have that problem, you do that. And I I think we're going to find over time that protocols just don't work. And as Dr. Horowitz said there, each of us is very unique. And that's why we need personalized care, because what works for one person doesn't work for the next. It would be kind of nice if it did. You know, we like simple things, diagnosis, treatment, there we go. But I think things are now getting so complex because of all the environmental factors. So uh, Dr. Horowitz is is spot on, I agree 100%. And that's why we need to move towards personalized care, rather than do this for that.
1: So let's talk about your role in creating an environment where personalized care is possible for each of us. And more importantly, uh, personalized care is available for every single person who's in the Lyme disease community. But before we get there, let's dig into Bob Miller and your background. So talk to us about where you're from and um, and how you were ultimately attracted to the field where you're now working.
2: Sure. Well, I grew up in a little town called Effort of Pennsylvania. It's a farming community, Pennsylvania Dutch. I'm sure people have heard of the Amish and the Mennonites. and a lot of those folks around here, and um, in in high school, I became very interested uh, in electronics, and I thought this was really cool stuff. So uh, I started, uh, you know, getting training and went down the um, electronics path. Uh, became involved in uh, telecommunications and uh, cable television. So my background was, you know, primarily understanding schematics and you know, all these things and patterns and such. And uh, in my early thirties, uh, I developed a very serious ulcerative colitis. And if anyone doesn't know what that is, it's an autoimmune disease that attacks the colon and uh, started out with diarrhea, then blood, then losing weight. And I knew I was in serious trouble. Uh, I ended up in the hospital for 21 days. Um, There was one night where I wasn't sure I was gonna make it. Uh, Lost half my blood, started hemorrhage. Things were going downhill fast. Uh, I knew of a homeopathic doctor who said, you need some phosphorus to stop the bleeding. Rush some of that in, stop the bleeding. Probably without that, probably would have passed away. Um, and the solution was we're going to cut out the colon. Um, I wasn't real excited about that thought. <laughs> it just didn't, uh, you know, the acute the, the nurse came in and said, here's the bag that'll weigh be on your side and you'll be perfectly fine. And I'm like, I'm not buying this. So um, being a stubborn Dutchman, it's like, well, you know, let me try some alternative things. And I really didn't know a thing about alternative medicine course, the doctors are very upset. You know, you're an idiot. You know, you'll be in the hospital two weeks out of the year. You'll be begging me to cut the colon out, you know, and um, it's like, well, maybe that's true, but um, I'd like to give this a try. So, you know, that was, um, you know, back a long, long time ago, that was the early nineties. Um, so we didn't know genetics back then, but I just did, you know, talk to some herbalists and acupuncturists and, you know, did all kinds of things, did some mind body work and uh, and managed to get well. And then I was Fascinated by this field, it's like well, this is really cool. Um, so, um, just being the uh, you know the curious person that I am, I started studying, <clears throat> started taking some courses on basic herbalism. Um, then learned of the concepts of uh, of traditional naturopathy. Uh, back at the time, there was a school called uh, <clears throat> Trinity School of Natural Health. Took their course, become certified as a traditional naturopath. Um, not knowing what I was going to do with it. Uh, And then I just started learning about people who uh, were struggling and they'd ask me questions. And so I was still working in the telecommunications industry for a long time, dual, you know, doing doing both, but recognizing that I'm totally fascinated by this field. Um, Then I started learning about uh, genetics, and we'll talk a little bit about that. You know, we'll try to simplify it and understand what it is. But I was totally fascinated by the fact that each of us Gets a, a genetic pattern from our parents that is unique to us. And that influences uh, how we become inflamed, how we detoxify, how we make antioxidants. Um, and I was just totally fascinated. So, having an electronics background uh, and uh, thinking in terms of, uh, you know, an electrician or someone in electronics makes schematics or drawings of how things work. So, I thought, well, this same thing applies to us. So just like an electronics person makes a schematic of a radio or television, I thought we can make schematics of the person. And that's exactly uh, what we've done. If you'd be in my office, you'd see I have this huge map on the wall that has just got all kinds of circles and lines and things like that. But it's how the body works. Uh, So I became very intrigued by this and um, um, just found that more and more people uh, wanted help. So I, uh, I went into semi-retirement from the telecommunications industry, started doing this and um, then found that, uh, you know, back at the time 23andMe was just coming around and you can download that data. Um, So I took that data, downloaded it into a spreadsheet, you know, just a regular Excel spreadsheet, put formulas in uh, for, uh, for how things work. And then other doctors became interested in it. It's like, Bob, what are you doing? Um, so I started sharing the spreadsheet. Um, then I realized that um, updating a spreadsheet and sending it to everybody's not the long-term solution. So I worked with some computer programmers to make my own cloud-based software um, that took the 23andMe data and analyzed it. Many years ago, 23andMe changed their, their format for whatever reason they wanted to do that for. Um, and I found that many of the markers I was looking at uh, were no longer there. So it was like, either I'm going to have a really bad report or I've got to do something else. So I, um, you know, took a deep breath and made my own my own chip. So I have my own uh, chip called Eurogenomic Resource that through health professionals, people use. And then we, uh, we use that to analyze, uh, are you making too many free radicals? For example, is your iron... Um, becoming a free radical rather than helping you make hemoglobin. Uh, And we can go through some of these pathways, but the bottom line is, are you making too much free radicals? Are you not making enough antioxidants that neutralize the free radicals? Are your detox pathways not working properly? And then if they are some problems, there's ways to compensate. I like to tell people I have no bad news. Um, One of my favorite jokes is the only bad news I could ever give you would be like, sorry, I don't see anything to help you with. Um, So when anybody has a problem, there are ways to compensate for it. So I worked with a company called uh, Personalized Nutrients and Compounded Nutrients. And uh, we now make supplements that are designed specifically, not for the disease, but where there's problems with function. And we can get into that. Uh, okay, so bit.
1: let's pause that for a second, Bob. And let's let's talk a little bit more about um, the, the current state of your business and the software that you have available. Now, um, you when we started this conversation, we were talking about individualized healthcare, right? And uh, talk to us about how your vision for creating individualized healthcare was born out of this software that you developed first through working with the data from 23andMe and now uh, through your own path because of the, uh, I guess, lack of availability of the markers that you needed through 23andMe.
2: Sure. Well, the... um... The, uh, the things that I found interesting, uh, was back in, uh, 2016, um, uh, the, uh, the organization called ILADS has conferences and, uh, they have people bring uh, research posters. And, um, so one of the things that I kept seeing with individuals who had, uh, Lyme disease was that many of them had a genetic marker that would cause and absorb more iron.
1: Um, can you give us a context for that? How did you how did you discover ILADS, and why was Lyme disease a passion of yours um, when yeah. you were now moving through your your journey?
2: Yeah, well, interesting story. It's it's rather serendipitous how sometimes um, things come our way. But I, I had um, someone working on my website, and um, they they were the creator of the website for for Tree of Life Health, and um, she was a sufferer of Lyme disease and uh they said well there's a pennsylvania lyme group would you come talk about uh genetics in general or functional genomics and it's like sure um so i um, i went gave a presentation thinking that was you know a fun little thing to do but all of a sudden all these people with lyme disease started knocking on my door and it's like well this is curious Uh, and what i kept seeing was that many of those who were suffering with chronic lyme disease had a genetic pattern where they overabsorbed iron. Uh, There's a serious disease called hemochromatosis where you really have a problem, but you can have what's called carrier status where you just absorb a little bit more. Um, So it's that group then that introduced me to to ILADS, and um, they said, well, Bob, why don't you uh, do a little research on this? So through Facebook, we put a call out to people, if you have chronic Lyme and would like to be part of a study, Back then it was 23andMe that had valuable data. Uh, They sent us the data and we just started crunching numbers. Um, And we just looked at how many of them have overabsorption of iron compared to what's called the 1000 genome project, which is like the average. And I think it was like 5.6 or 5.8 times more likely to have this HFE mutation that caused you to absorb more iron in those with chronic Lyme. So we made that as a poster. And at the time, uh, ILADS had U.S. and international conferences. So uh, I submitted my uh, my research to, uh, to ILADS, and it got accepted as a as a poster. So off I went to Helsinki, Finland in uh, 2016, and lo and behold, I'm the, the winner of the research. And it's like, well, that's... Congratulations. Curious. Yeah, that, that's curious. I mean, no big deal. There's, you know, eight or 10 people that had posters. And I mean, this isn't any... You know fabulous thing but out of all of them they said we found this to be the most interesting uh, research um so then all of a sudden all these people with lyme disease started uh, knocking on my door so it's nothing that i you know i know a lot of people who get involved with lyme disease you know they have they have it or their family has it um i never had lyme none of my family had lyme but it was just sort of serendipitous as to uh, how dots connected and people came our way and and the rest is history, I guess, as they uh, as they say. So right. I, I've done so I've done eight uh, posters so far for uh, for for ILADS. and uh, and our subject today that I want to cover called ranties uh, is going to be some of our uh, new research, and things are coming together where we can. We're actually going to do some research in a new way on individuals with chronic Lyme, and to see uh, what patterns they have that may lead to uh, more of this. This may be a a real smoking gun that's affecting a lot of people. So, so that's the history of how I got down Lyme. It was just uh, serendipitous how individuals who um, had Lyme came into my life and just, you know, sometimes the universe works in interesting ways.
1: We think the universe always works in interesting ways. We don't <laughs> believe there are any coincidences. And, you know, of course, there's no, there is no coincidence that, uh, you know, you're doing this work in the Lyme Belt, right? I mean, as it turns out, your home state, Pennsylvania, is now – has now surpassed uh, our state, uh, New York, especially uh, Long Island, where we we are we are really tick endemic community. Um, you you actually have a greater number of Lyme disease, chronic Lyme disease patients in your state than any other state in the country. So you know we could argue that it is no coincidence that you know you're on this journey in this on this path in the state where there's more Lyme disease and. I guess we can say it was a coincidence that somebody with chronic Lyme disease is doing your website and it's a coincidence that you got invited to the meeting and it's a coincidence that you did all of these other things or we can, you know, we can see this for what it is right, which is, uh, you know, you were made to do this and you were supposed to do this and now you are doing it so. Let's let's build this out a little bit more before Matt starts to, he's jumping out of his seat, so I don't want to keep Matt, uh, you know, in the box for too much longer. But so talk to us about a little bit more about how this has now become a way for doctors to provide um, personalized uh, care for chronic Lyme disease patients.
2: Sure. So as I said, I, I created my own chip now because the, um, the version five of 23andMe just, I mean, it's a great test for ancestry and all kinds of things. But for the pathways we're looking at no longer had it so i worked with uh, thermo fisher to make my own custom chip and then i have a cloud-based software called functional genomic analysis and health professionals can um, use my software um, and then they can buy for their patients the genetic test so they they have their patient do the test the information gets sent to a lab the genetic data comes back into the software And then the doctor helps interpret it for them and then i provide uh, certification courses for doctors i provide webinars every other tuesday evening Uh, we do a live conference uh, every year where we try to bring doctors up to speed and uh, so that's that's where we're moving and it's not for everyone i mean the um, for a doctor to do this um, it's not for the faint of heart i mean this isn't a plug and play where you uh, get the data and then it tells you what to do this is something that uh, it doesn't have to be just a doctor, it can be a chiropractor, uh, acupuncturist, but anybody who's, you know, certified or licensed in, in medical care. Um, they, they have to put time and effort into it. Uh, this is not a, oh, I get a one page report that tells me what to do. We're, we're trying to develop the software so that there's more guidance. Uh, but this is for the, um, for the health professional who really is willing to put time and effort, uh, into what they're doing. It isn't a quick, quick solution.
1: So let's talk about this from the patient standpoint. You said that you know there's there's something sent to you. So what is it? Blood that's sent to you? Or is there something else that's sent to you? And 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 how does the patient provide that uh, that material to the healthcare provider to get it to you?
2: Sure. Very simple. It's a saliva. So uh, maybe we ought to talk about genomics just a little bit. I mean, what a miracle we are. Uh, at the moment we were conceived, uh, when the sperm and the egg went together, your genetic pattern was made and it never changes. Five years after you've passed away, if there's tissue left and somebody measures, it's gonna be exactly the same. So we'll, let's step back just a little bit more. I mean, what a miracle we are. We eat fats, carbohydrates, proteins. We drink water, breathe air, and we're exposed to sunlight, and everything gets made from that. I mean, that's really just astonishing. If, I mean, every time I tell people that in my own mind, I'm thinking, this is really amazing. Uh, when you think of it your hair your skin your nails your blood your neurotransmitters they all get made from those primary ingredients the way they do that is they they do that because enzymes take one substance add something else make something new then another enzyme comes along does the same thing and then another enzyme comes along your dna is the instructions on how to make the enzymes And when we have what are called SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms, mutations, whatever you want to call them, your body's ability to make that enzyme may be at 70%, 80%. It's just not as, as good. And we'll talk later as we move along. Sometimes the genetic mutations actually cause an enzyme to work faster, but primarily genetic mutations cause the body to work slower in one of those processes. So what we do is we have the, uh, the, the the client or patient of the doctor just spit in a little vial, send it to a, uh, a lab at, uh, that's located at uh, Rutgers University. It's not with the university, but it's located at their location. They extract the DNA, and then they electronically send it to uh, the, the company that runs my software, who puts that DNA into the software, and then the patient gets notified, your report's ready, the doctor has it. And then the doctor does a consultation where they go over with them. Here's what we think we're finding. You might be over absorbing iron. You might be not turning glutamate into GABA. We can talk about that more later. Uh, Your nitric oxide may be out of balance. And then the doctor will go about making a custom program for them. So if somebody says, well, what do you do for Lyme disease? It's like, I don't know. It all depends upon the individual. So you could see 20 people... And have twenty different approaches. So that's all,
1: Bob. Bob, You said that this is not for the faint of heart. Meaning, there's a fair amount of work that has to be done by the practitioner uh, in order to be able to use the tools that you're developing, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you've seen patterns, right? In fact, what brought you to ILADS and what brought you to this field of Lyme disease was the patterns that you started to identify with the people that you were working with. I guess informally in the beginning, right? So is your report going to provide any information on the patterns that you've observed and are those patterns building out as time goes on and as you're treating more and more line patients?
2: Sure. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Those patterns are evolving. And um, we're, we're always improving the, the software. Um, you know, I put uh, 40 to $60,000 a month into software development. And uh, one of our next steps that we want to have is an executive summary uh, where I put logic in. It's going to take me, months to do this. <clears throat> may not be available till, till close to the, the fall or the end of uh, 2022. But I want to put in logic where where I say to the doctor on the report, well, it looks like they're over absorbing iron, but it also looks like they're not clearing the hydrogen peroxide that combines with iron. You know, this is an area for you to, to look at. So we're trying to make it as easy as possible uh, for the health professional. Uh, but it's a, it's an ongoing process where we're always learning new things. And uh, eventually someday we probably need artificial intelligence in there to do some of this uh, analysis. So uh, before my time on this earth is finished, I'd love to have, um, you know, an AI that uh, that does this data and then uh, does further analysis for the physician. And by the way, this isn't just Lyme. This, these, these patterns are, you know, very uh, similar in people that are exposed to mold. Um, and, I, and I think what we're finding is that in, one of us take this all down to one one bottom line you know environmental factors that we weren't exposed to before is increasing the uh, the toxic burden the inflammatory burden on the body so when something called you know something like lyme disease or epstein-barr or anything else comes along the body is just ill-prepared to deal with it and may either not be able to deal with it or overreact to it and a lot of the times we're seeing an overreaction. reaction i mean if you were to look at uh, covid today It's a very serious virus, but the people are the sickest are overreacting with their immune system, and that's causing the the serious illness and the fatalities, the overreaction of the immune system. And I think that's a common theme that we're seeing. I mean, we're seeing autoimmune disease among young people skyrocketing, Um, and we're just seeing all of these inflammatory diseases uh, rising. Uh, As a nation, we're not getting healthier. Uh, We're getting sicker.
0: So, Bob, many people in the Lyme community are interested in these types of genetic tests, but their doctors may not be willing to work with them to be able to put the work in to understand how to evaluate and look at these reports that are not easy to read, you know, based on what you just told us. So you are a naturopathic practitioner and you do have your tree of life practice. So if if people are listening and they want to get these tests, but they don't have a doctor to partner with to issue these tests and review these tests can they work with you virtually or in person to get these tests ordered and evaluated? Because we know of Lyme, many times it's inflammation is the root cause of our symptoms. And many times it's these genetic deficiencies which are driving the inflammation. So can people treat with you directly if they don't have a local doctor to work with to do these tests through your functional genomic analysis company that you've created?
2: Oh, absolutely! Just just one disclaimer: we don't use the word "treat." You know, we just uh, you know naturally support. So we're not uh, physicians that treat. But yeah, we um, uh, that's why I do that nine to eleven hours a day, six days a week. Um, and I we talk to people all over the world. Um, many of them referrals from physicians, from uh, you know physicians who are treating the Lyme, and they're like, "We're not getting anywhere." I mean, we're doing antibiotics. We're doing antibiotics. Um, go see Bob. And I don't treat the Lyme disease. You know. I look at the underlying conditions that allows uh, the inflammation to inhibit the body's ability to to do its job. Most of the time, what we find is there is something that's causing excess inflammation, be it be iron, glutamate, nitric oxide, IL-6 being upregulated, and really don't don't, uh, don't worry about all those terms. The, The bottom line is there's multiple factors that can cause us to have excess inflammation then there's multiple factors that don't allow us to neutralize those free radicals or some of our detox pathways aren't working. Clean those up, then the prescribing physician who treats the Lyme all of a sudden finds that their treatment is successful.
0: Bob, you're telling us you don't treat. And I wanna argue that what you're doing is even more powerful than treatment because we have practitioners trying to treat chronic Lyme patients without success using a wide variety of treatment modalities. And then they refer people to you to better understand what's going on. And prior to your consultation, they're pretty much walking in the dark, trying to figure out what underlying conditions, because we're all individualized, are causing these people to not get better with treatment. You give them the data they need to make informed decisions to optimize the body and better receive the treatment. So I want to argue that you are treating indirectly, but in a much more powerful way by giving us data-driven information to bring people back to health. So what do you think about that?
2: Well, you know, we're, we're parsing words here, I suppose, but let's just keep in mind from a legal standpoint, uh, only licensed medical doctors treat something. So uh, so that's why we uh, we avoid that word like the plague. We don't diagnose, treat, prescribe. Uh, we, we coach people or, or help them understand uh, how to build their health uh, naturally. So it just becomes a more of a legal thing rather than actually what we're doing. Just have so, to be careful that you don't practice medicine without a license. Yes.
0: Understood. And we'll say it for you. Tig Bootcamp will say that it's important to understand what's going on at the genetic level because we have seen, after interviewing over 250 people, there are things going on in the human body that are so individualized that are preventing people from getting better for decades until they have that big picture, and then they can finally reach a place where they have health. And I think that's why it's so important for us to point that out. But well, you know, that's that's very well understood. But Bob, talk to us more about now the seed versus soil approach.
2: Sure. Well, let's let's look at um, you know the, the the treatment or care of people from a historical standpoint. Uh, everyone's heard of the name of uh, Louis Pasteur, you know, he's the guy who said there's a bacteria and we have to kill that bacteria and of course he's he's correct, we we have to do that. Um, a name that people probably haven't heard is Antoine Béchamp, probably not many people have heard of him. He was a contemporary of Louis Pasteur at the time and he said, you know Louis, you're right, but I think it's the environment or he used the term internal milieu that allows the pathogen thrive. And we need to make sure that internal milieu is proper so that the bacteria or the virus or whatever it is cannot thrive. Now, you know, legend has it that, you know, they argued with each other and, you know, kind of uh, were in conflict. And, you know, it's probably urban legend, but uh, uh, they they said that uh, Louis Pasteur on his deathbed said uh, Antoine Pachamp was correct. Now, probably didn't happen. It's probably just a, a story that got created, but you know so you know traditional allopathic medicine is kill the pathogen of course that's that's great i mean that's life saving it does wonderful things but if someone's terrain is off so badly that's when some of those treatments don't work and that's where we have to change uh, the milieu or the internal environment here's a here's a good story that kind of helps people understand if you have a stagnant pond mosquitoes come there and you can go out every day and spray for the uh, the mosquitoes or you can clean up the pond, and then the mosquitoes don't come there anymore. So that's that's kind of the uh, the, the story behind. Uh, you know, I think when I tell people that story, they understand a little bit better what we're talking about. So do you go out every day and try to kill the mosquitoes, or do you say, "I got a swampy pond here. I better get this thing cleaned up," and then all of a sudden the mosquitoes are gone, and uh, and then maybe that final push of the uh, of the bug killer works.
0: So it sounds like to me, because you mentioned earlier in this podcast with Rich, that some people get Lyme and never get sick. Other people get Lyme, they get sick, a little sick, they get treated with antibiotics and they get better. And then other people with Lyme get, Lyme get Lyme, get treated for Lyme and never get better. So your approach is really going to be catered towards those people who don't get better because there's something deeper that has to be addressed based on the analogy you just described for us.
2: Yeah. Those are the people that we, we traditionally consult with. You know, they've been seeing phenomenal physicians who really know what they're doing they really know how to treat. But despite you know years of treatment they're not getting well and uh, those are the people who kind of knock on our door and say bob what i'm doing is not working and as i said i have a lot of uh, you know very qualified lyme physicians you know lyme literate physicians who say you know what go see bob and because uh, they know I'm, I'm not going to take over what they're doing i'm not going to treat the lime but we're going to clean up the environment and uh, then that makes them look good as well that they've uh you know, they found a solution to, uh, to get them out of this ditch that they're in.
0: And you, everything you're saying is supporting our observations. Again, after interviewing, you know, so many people on this podcast, that it's never one doctor who's going to get a chronically ill Lyme patient better. It's never one treatment. It's never one doctor. It's never one protocol. And doctors in collaboration with a doctor like you or a practitioner like you, Bob, are going to be able to have more success than taking this standalone approach that we see many people use and not have great success with. But talk to me about some of these patterns. I mean, you've been doing this research now for quite a while. You've been presenting at ILADS for, I mean, many, many, many years. And Rich kind of hinted at some of these observations you're making with patterns in the chronic Lyme community. So give us a little more detail about what you're seeing in chronic Lyme patients that are different than normal patients and how you're using those observations to help people overcome their health journeys with the chronic Lyme.
2: Hmm, Sure. Yeah, one of the the first observations that we had, which goes back to uh, Helsinki 2016, um, and I I didn't know why. I mean, I just observed that that the people who had chronic Lyme were carrier status for overabsorption of iron. So let's talk about iron a little bit. Uh, Without iron, life doesn't exist uh, because we need iron to make our hemoglobin to carry our oxygen. However, um, if iron is in excess or not carried around properly, it is one nasty, nasty free radical. Um, and that's why iron rusts. And uh, one of the, and we'll try to make this uh, easy to understand, um, the body makes something called hydrogen peroxide as part of its detox process. When the energy is, um, when energy is being made, uh, sometimes an electron flies off and everybody knows, you know, we have a neutron, proton, and electron, and that combines with oxygen and it makes a free radical called superoxide. And I will be coming back to superoxide quite a bit because I'm in many of my podcasts now for doctors, I'm talking about superoxide as being public enemy number one because of so many ways that we can make it. Well, as, as the body's detox, it takes that superoxide, turns it into something called hydrogen peroxide. Then we need some antioxidants called glutathione, catalase, thriadoxin, to neutralize that and turn it into water. If that doesn't happen, iron combines with that hydrogen peroxide to make what are called hydroxyl radicals that are very inflammatory. And that's the most common thing I've seen in those with chronic Lyme. So to simplify it, the iron can be an excess and it combines with something else and the name of it doesn't matter, but it's hydrogen peroxide and it makes excessive inflammation inside the body. Um, that's number one. The the second most common thing now is the flip side. Uh, We need something called antioxidants to neutralize free radicals. So putting this in very simple terms, we're made out of atoms. We've got the neutron, proton, and the electron that spins. A free radical is when one of those electrons gets ripped off and it's unstable and it will damage the body. And everyone's heard of antioxidants antioxidants in simple terms have a spare electron. They neutralize the free radical. So you got this bad free radical, this bad guy, and you got the good guy, the antioxidant, that takes out or neutralizes that free radical. It's a pretty simple concept to understand. Most people have heard of glutathione. Glutathione is the body's master antioxidant. It's made from three amino acids and it has a spare electron. When it does its job, it does its job by donating that electron, so it becomes what's called oxidized. In other words, it's lost its electron. We then need to recycle that oxidized glutathione. We need to take that oxidized and put it back and recharge it. So it's charged, it's used, it's depleted, it needs recharging. One of the most common things we see is there's genetic issues where people don't recharge that glutathione very well. So they have a hard time putting that electron back on. The name of the enzymes really don't matter, but it's glutathione S-reductase. Uh, we need something called NADPH that's made by various uh, genes, one of the biggest ones, nqo one And, you know, people glaze over when they hear, hear all those names. It really doesn't much matter. But for people who understand them, they might find them interesting. But for the most part, let's just simplify it in that for many people, they don't recharge their glutathione. And interestingly, uh, some people may relate to this, you know, well-meaning practitioners say, well, glutathione does all these wonderful things. We're going to give you glutathione. And they feel great for a day or two and then crash. And they're like, what's going on here? And And I've heard many people say they're their health practitioner got angry at them. You can't have a negative reaction to glutathione. It's the master antioxidant. It neutralizes free radicals. You're just you a hypochondriac, you're imagining this thing. Well, they're not. If you don't take that oxidized glutathione back to the reduced, interestingly, I mean, this just seems so ironic, taking glutathione makes you worse. And that just seems like such an oxymoron that how could you take an antioxidant that does all these good things and make you worse, but if you don't recycle that glutathione, it actually does turn into another free radical that makes you worse. And that's the complicatedness of this. That you know, for some people, glutathione is like, woohoo! I got my life back. This is great. You know, <laughs> I'm detoxing. I'm neutralizing free radicals. You hoo You know, everything's great. Other people take glutathione. It's like, what the heck just happened to me? I feel horrible. So if you look at the genomics, you can see if people have difficulty taking that oxidized glutathione back to the reduced, and there's actually interventions you can do. Uh, we actually, I, we, we created a product called GSR Assist. GSR is the enzyme that does that. And it has some, you know, ridiculously simple things in it, like parsley, lycopene from tomatoes, riboflavin, something called nicotamide mononucleotide that supports the recycling of glutathione. Then the doctor gives glutathione and it's like, I'm feeling better. Hmm. So that's an example of the the patterns we see. There's usually something that's causing excess free radicals, iron can be one. And then there's usually something that doesn't allow them to neutralize the free radicals. It's usually some combination. So another one that I often see in uh, people with Lyme disease or maybe by, you know, by just uh, the people that knock on my doorstep. And you know, it's usually the people who do this are very intelligent, highly motivated, go-getters. And, and maybe that's just the selection process who will look at something like this. But there's a, um, there's a neurotransmitter called glutamate. And glutamate makes you very intelligent, highly motivated, go-getter kind of person. That's a good thing, unless it's in excess. And glutamate needs to turn into GABA, which is the don't worry, relax, be happy. So on the one hand, glutamate makes you this intelligent, sometimes brilliant, sometimes gifted people. I'm sure you find there's probably many gifted people or who were gifted before they got sick. Um, And interestingly, there's genetic patterns that can cause a person to create more glutamate there's genetic patterns that can inhibit your body to turn glutamate into GABA, but inflammation and infection inhibits that glutamate to GABA conversion. So I'm sure many of the people listening to this will say, you know, I was doing okay, but when I got Lyme, I became very anxious. Um, And that's a very common thing that happens that they can't focus, they can't sleep, uh, because that glutamate is not turning into GABA. Now, I, I won't uh, delve into all the biochemistry, but excess glutamate can further stimulate even more inflammation, not just uh, not just anxiety. So the person is inflamed and anxious. Their mind is racing. Uh, many of these individuals, uh, bright lights and loud noise bothers them from the glutamate. Uh, MSG, you know, sends them through the roof. Uh, well-meaning people say, we need to heal your gut. Let me give you a supplement with glutamine in it. And it throws them into a you know worse condition. Um, and uh, so many of these people are, are really struggling and they don't know why. And some of the therapies that they're given, uh, if you've got excess glutamate and you take glutamine, and again, in the functional world, many people say glutamine heals the gut. Well, it does. But if you've got a glutamate problem, you've just made that worse. So that's where I go back to we can't have protocols. I give everybody glutamine to heal their gut. That works for some individuals. For other people, it makes them worse. So that high glutamate is very, very common. Sometimes people will actually even have uh, visual hallucinations where they think they see an animal or a person off to the side. Uh, They can't sleep uh, because their mind is, uh, is racing. So that's the uh, that's the that's one of the other patterns of uh, of glutamate. That's another pattern I've seen. Uh, third one that is very common is uh, histamine, and histamine uh, is our friend unless it's not. So uh, what uh, we can put in a link here. We, I did an interview with uh, with Dr. Jill Carnahan, and uh, we spoke for well over an hour on histamine. So we'll just give the, the cliff notes here. Uh, when we are faced with a, a pathogen uh, of any kind, histamine can come to our rescue. However, if histamine is in excess, this is where we get itchy, we get rashes. You can even get asthma when it's, uh, you know, really bad. And uh, and histamine will stimulate something called rantes that we'll talk a little bit about later. There are individuals who have genetic patterns that they create more histamine, Or there's multiple enzymes that degrade histamine. And you can have genetic mutations on these enzymes that you don't degrade your histamine very well. So once again, you know, well-meaning people can say, oh, you need to heal your gut. We need to get the, uh, the, the probiotics going. So I want you to eat a lot of fermented foods. And for these people, that is the worst thing to do. Because that just drives up their histamine even more. Now, I'm not against fermented foods. They do all the good things that everybody says they do. Um, they they put the good bacteria back in the gut. But if your histamine bucket is already filled and you start eating histamine foods, you've just tipped it over the edge. And, uh, and we can have another link uh, where we speak about uh, a Dr. Jill uh, interview where we talk about the NOx enzyme where this thing just becomes a self-perpetuating cycle where the histamine stimulates an inflammatory agent called interleukin-6. That creates more mast cells, that creates more histamine. And you're just in one loop that keeps spinning. And then when you do histamine foods, you make it worse. So I'm sure there's many people listening to this. You know, if they have a glass of wine, they're like, oh my God, (laughs) it's killing me. Uh, They eat kombucha, miso or even foods that they prepare fresh put them in the refrigerator eat them a couple days later and they react to it and they don't understand why I was fine on that three days ago now I'm reacting it's fermented so fermented foods just like glutathione can be very helpful or they can be very harmful glutamine can be very helpful can be very harmful and we need to know what is individualized for the person. Again, one size does not fit all. So there's a, there's a couple of examples of some of the, uh, the common things we see. Iron creating extra free radicals, glutamate causing inflammation, glutathione not recycling. If I had to say what are the common things I see, uh, that's it. And you know, some people are what I call the one pony show where they've just got one issue Others are the proverbial uh, train wrecks where they've got multiple things going on together. And we generally find that the sicker people are, the more they have going on. They might have the iron, the glutamate, the glutathione, all of those uh, together. And and the final one that I want to emphasize that ties it all together, uh, we are seeing a pattern in people that are really struggling. uh, They're not handling their fats properly. So we all know the benefit of of fats, particularly like the omega-3s, but there's enzymes called FADs, fatty acid desaturases, that don't allow the omega-3s to come down the entire pathway to make these anti-inflammatory, what are called protectins and resolvents. So these people don't do well on fish oils. And again, you know, people are told, you know, fish oils, they're wonderful. They're anti-inflammatory. Well, they are if you have the enzymes that allow them to to do their job properly so that's the uh that's the other thing that we generally find many people who are struggling they have genetic issues with their fads enzymes fatty acid desaturases that doesn't allow them to use those omega-3s so they take fish oils thinking it's going to be anti-inflammatory if it doesn't do any harm at least it's not helpful and uh, those i think would say the are the big things we find And then environmentally, uh, many of the individuals who are struggling also had mold exposure. There seems to be a a commonality because what we're finding is the inflammatory pathways that are stimulated by Lyme are also stimulated by mold. Uh, So that becomes a real issue. So a lot of times we have to uh, do testing for mold. A lot of folks are in mold. They don't even realize it. Uh, I, I'm not an expert on mold, but I think it's getting stronger. And, uh, and then some people also have sensitivity to, uh, electromagnetic fields. Uh, some people can't handle cell phones and it might be as simple as not sitting next to your router or <laughs> not having your, uh, your router in your bedroom or charging your cell phone next to you. So we're now being exposed to environmental toxins that we weren't exposed to before. I'd have to put mold at the top, but, uh, there's many other things like glyphosate uh, we're doing hormone disruption because we're giving animals growth hormones and one of my uh, more recent concerns is uh, plastics uh you know the plastics that we make never fully de- you know degrade we're getting all these microplastics so we we've really created a toxic soup that we're living in so if you've got some of those toxins genetic weakness and then along comes lime. Proverbial perfect storm.
1: So, uh, Bob, this is just—I mean—unbelievably powerful, and just you've given us so much gold that uh, I'm not even sure we're going to be able to break it all down as uh, as as much as we'd like to. But I, I'd like to walk back to the free radical conversation because it's something that uh, we we hear a lot about, but I don't know that anyone really describes it in adequate detail because it sounds to me that that's really the the, the key to all inflammation that you've outlined here with this toxic soup, for example, that we're living in. So tell us more about free radicals and how they create inflammation. Because my understanding is that if you have this, um, you have this free radical or this el- electron that is not, does not have, um, does not have, is out of balance. What it does is it goes and it rips out what it needs from other cells and destroys the other cells, which is why we have the inflammation and why it actually causes us to age. Because we've we've seen a lot of uh, folks who have chronic Lyme disease and they age very quickly. So can you talk about you know first free radicals in a little bit more detail and why it's important that we that we um, we resolve the problem when we resolve the free radical and what happens if we don't and why that's causing the inflammation?
2: Sure. Well, let's go back to you know how we're made I mean everything gets down when you get down to the smallest level we're made out of atoms so in the middle I mean we all learned this in uh, you know in high school neutron proton in the middle electron that spins and electrically that needs to be balanced um when we're and that's why I said uh, I believe that uh, superoxide is public enemy number one so what happens is that sometimes when we're making energy inside the cell um, something goes wrong and an electron flies off.
1: All so Bob, can we pause that possibly, there for a second? Right? So cells are little energy power plants, right? Where they're, they're yes. little, the little power plants. So on, 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 on the most basic, I'll give you like, I'll, I'll call myself the meathead on the most basic meathead level. We have these little power plants in our body and these power plants have a neutron, a proton an electron, as you had just described it. And on, on, in some cases uh the the little power plant is out of balance meaning it has an extra electron correct
2: yes well one of the atoms inside the cell In you know okay. the you know you're made up of cells 60 to 100 trillion cells again what a miracle we are and then inside there you have something called the mitochondria that takes fats carbs and proteins and makes energy uh, it's called the citric acid cycle or the the krebs cycle sometimes an electron flies off and combines with oxygen to make something called Superoxide. Now, one of the things we're we're looking at is there's now multiple ways that uh, we can make that superoxide, and that superoxide damages your cells. Um, you know, I, I've done a uh, an online certification course that, by the way, the uh, you know the public can take if they you know they're not they're not going to be a practitioner, but they can if they really want to learn. Uh, and we we do a whole module on what superoxide is and how it damages us. However, the the body will make an antioxidant called superoxide dismutase so superoxide is the free radical superoxide dismutase is the antioxidant and we can have genetic issues that we don't make enough superoxide dismutase so there's there's three of them there's sod one sod two and sod three and we can actually look at the dna and say oh it looks like you're not a good producer of superoxide dismutase." so what that superoxide does then it will damage the cells um, and it will if, if we do have enough superoxide dismutase we make hydrogen peroxide and then if we don't have enough glutathione or another enzyme called catalase iron combines with that in what's called the fenton reaction discovered all the way back in 1897 by dr fenton and makes what are called hydroxyl radicals that again just wreck havoc throughout the body Okay, so let's, so let's
1: pause that, Bob, because you're you're giving us a lot of really powerful stuff, and I just want to understand it again yeah. on meathead level. So we 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 have this we have this electron that spins off. It combines with oxygen and it becomes a superoxide. And then then what we're hoping happens is that there is something that will offset the superoxide because if we don't have something like glutathione, which is going to have an extra. Uh, electron to balance out the superoxide what that superoxide is going to do is it's going to tear apart cells right and that's why we're going to have the inflammation
2: well almost superoxide dismutase is what neutralizes the superoxide free radical okay that makes hydrogen peroxide and that's where we need the glutathione
1: okay so that so the glutathione is the next step right is the next step So, so we, we, um, so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a multiple step process if we're going to prevent the inflammation, right? So the first thing is, is we have to balance out the, um, the uh, superoxide or that, that free radical. uh, And then, because if we don't do that, it's going to tear apart more cells, but then we have to take the next step, which is where the glutathione comes in and the glutathione is going to have to, is going to have to now, what does it do? It, it, It now balances off. The... Well, it it
2: turns that hydrogen peroxide into water and oxygen. Okay. That we then neutralizes it.
1: So, so neutralizing meaning then it's no longer tearing apart the cells that it's looking to get the balanced electron from, right? Yes. So now what happens, again, I need it on the basic meathead level, what happens if you don't have glutathione or if you have some defect in your body that doesn't allow you to use the glutathione to convert the superoxide into water and oxygen.
2: The peroxynitrite, I'm sorry, the uh, hydrogen peroxide into water and oxygen. So superoxide uses superoxide dismutase to make hydrogen peroxide, then glutathione and catalase turn that into water and oxygen.
1: Okay, so stop there. So what's the big deal if we have all the extra hydrogen peroxide in our system?
2: It combines with iron and makes what are called hydroxyl radicals that chew you up and spit you out.
1: Okay, now so we, we have first free radicals. We know what they do. Now, give me this this new radical. Is what is it called?
2: Hydroxyl radical.
1: Okay. and I'm now sure you've about?
2: heard of. You've, I'm sure you've heard of many people drinking hydrogen water. Yes. Okay, the hydrogen neutralizes that hydroxyl radical. That's why hydrogen water can be so helpful. In case anybody not knows, there's little tablets. Uh, that you just drop in water, and very simply, water is H two O. So this tablet fizzes, and you'll see what's well, all those bubbles in there. Well, that's hydrogen. You drink that, and it neutralizes the hydroxyl radicals.
1: Okay, but what? So, but what will a hydroxyl radical do? How does that cause inflammation? How does that? You said it will attack your body. How is it attacking your body?
2: Well, it's it's another free radical that that will just in trying to neutralize itself damage your cells.
1: Okay. So that will cause inflammation as well.
2: That'll cause inflammation. Now, I'd like to go back to superoxide and why I believe it's public enemy number one. Um, the, uh, what we're finding, and uh, is that all the electromagnetic fields that we're exposed to from cell phones, from Wi-Fi, from all the towers, um, actually can cause excess calcium to enter the cell, make something called calmodium, and that name doesn't really much matter but that will cause the body to make more superoxide. So we are now making more superoxide as a result of our our cell phone. So that's why keeping your cell phone away from you a little bit. um, In my office here, everything's wired. Um, I have wired monitors, I have wired keyboard, I have a wired mouse. Uh, I try my best to uh, keep superoxide, you know, the uh, EMF away from us. But I believe someday we're gonna look back and say, God, we loved our cell phones. I mean, all the things we can do on them, but oops, it was creating the the superoxide. Um, And I mean, that's an emerging field. And and interestingly, there are genetic mutations that cause some people to be more susceptible to EMF. There's a little uh, enzyme on the outside of the cell called a calcium voltage channel that brings that calcium in. There's genetic defects or SNPs that allow you to be more susceptible. To that, okay. So, um, so, and then there's, uh, uh, and we'll talk about this a little bit more with nitric oxide. And again, I think we have a link where we, uh, where, where I do like an hour and a half on what's called the Carnahan reaction. But again, environmental factors cause the body to make superoxide rather than nitric oxide, and we can talk about that more later when we go through some of these pathways. But nitric oxide. Uh, won a, the research on it won a Nobel prize in 1997 as it improves your circulation. And that's why sometimes people will carry nitroglycerin with them to boost that nitric oxide. That's why men will take Viagra Cialis for erectile function because it helps with nitric oxide. And we can get into this later. There's genetic patterns that will cause you to make more superoxide rather than nitric oxide based upon genetic factors and or environmental factors. So I keep going back to both. So a lot of the people that are ill today, had they been born 75 years earlier, they'd probably be perfectly fine because we have just uh, polluted the earth with uh, the plastics, the, the glyphosate, the electromagnetic fields, genetically modifying our foods, giving our animals growth hormones, uh, you know, it's estimated that each of us uh, consume the equivalent of a credit card a week in uh, plastics that are uh, disrupting hormones. And uh, you know, you and I both know. We we teased before the start that we're we're both uh, geezers. And uh, you know, when <laughs> when we were born, or when we were twelve, uh, what did little what did girls look like? Little girls. Now they look like eighteen year olds because of the hormonal disruption. Uh, so we have just done a lot environmentally, that I believe is a contributing factor to uh, to Lyme disease being so serious in some individuals.
1: So let, let's go back to the glutathione, right? So the glutathione is—you you gave us a, a really powerful explanation of of how glutathione will help to um, protect us against the hydrox hydrox radical. Yes. Um, but you said in some cases, in some people, the glutathione cannot be, is, is not, is not helpful to them to um, offset the impact of the hydroxyl radical. Why is that?
2: Okay. Um, and it's the, the glutathione clears the, um, the hydrogen peroxide that okay. makes the, uh, that makes the hydroxyl radical.
1: But so let's so talk we'll about with that, Bob. So, so, so if, if. In in some people, the glutathione is effective in preventing the hydrox radical. Yes. In some cases, it is not. And you said in some cases, taking glutathione will actually make it worse for them and create more. Is it free radicals or hydrox radicals?
2: Uh, If oxidized glutathione doesn't go back to reduced, it becomes superoxide. Okay. So how ironic is that? Uh, but let's, let's back up on glutathione because glutathione is the body's master antioxidant. And it does two things. Through glutathione peroxidase, it neutralizes those like that hydrogen peroxide and other free radicals. And there's a phase two detox process called glutathione conjugation where we take out toxins like mold and other things. Glutathione is made from three amino acids, cysteine, glycine, glutamine. That's why sometimes people take NAC and acetylcysteine. Uh, there's enzymes that assemble them all together. Sometimes we have genetic defects in those enzymes. Interestingly, mold will inhibit cysteine from going into glutathione. So if someone's got mold and either on their own or through some practitioner says, oh, you need glutathione here, let me give you some cysteine," that can actually backfire if that cysteine doesn't turn into glutathione so let's assume the body makes glutathione properly it's got a spare electron on it it takes out toxins or it neutralizes hydrogen peroxide after it does that it gave away its electron because remember we said a free radical is missing an electron then glutathione itself is oxidized meaning that it's missing that electron we need something called nadph and the gsr enzyme to put that electron back on to keep recycling it so if we have genetic mutations that the gsr enzyme doesn't work or we don't have the cofactor uh, fad which comes from riboflavin that oxidized doesn't go back to reduced and we make superoxide so if someone throws more glutathione at them Many times it's like, boy, for the first five days, woohoo, this is great. I'm feeling wonderful, followed by, oh, my God, what just happened to me? Okay. Because they weren't able to keep up recycling that glutathione. So in our health coaching here, what we'll do is we'll help people take that oxidized glutathione back to reduced, then about two weeks later, take glutathione one day a week. And then it's helpful. Okay. Okay. Now, I don't want to complicate things too much more, but this is a really important part. Um, there's something called Nrf2, Nrf2. And perhaps people have heard of that. There are some companies that sell supplements that support Nrf2. Nrf2, let's give a story here. Let's think of a building with a sprinkler. And the sprinkler sits up in the ceiling. And it does nothing until there's a fire. Fire starts. Sprinkler puts out water, hopefully to put the fire out. Nerf 2 is the signal that says, I detect a fire here. And Nerf 2 sends a signal, like a message, like a text message. Think of a text message. Hey, enzymes that make glutathione, that use glutathione, that recycle glutathione, do your thing because we have a threat. Well, you can have genetic mutations in Nerf 2 And let's just take the complication up another step <laughs> there's a prime enzyme called keep one k-e-a-p-1 that degrades Nrf2 and it's actually the one that releases Nrf2 you can have genetic mutations that that keep one is stronger you can have genetic mutations that the Nrf2 is weaker so for those people I give the analogy the story of well think of a sprinkler the fire starts and the sprinkler says fire what fire we don't see a fire here, so they don't send that signal out. So, in addition to having difficulty recycling, some people have difficulty in the master control up top here that says it's time to make, utilize, and recycle your glutathione. Very. On,
0: Can I interrupt real quick? I'm sorry, Bob. I just want to make sure I understand this correctly. So, because we hear this a lot in the chronic Lyme community, where people—and I'm just going to be blunt about the products—we we hear about ProTandem, the little yellow pill, being the cure for chronic Lyme disease, and again. Rich and I and Tick Bootcamp, we don't believe there is a magic pill or a magic cure, but it's not like there is some benefit possibly for people that have issues with NRF2 generation. And the way you're describing it is if your body needs to respond to something and your NRF2 is not really, I guess, adequately sufficient or it's depleted, you're not going to then sound the alarm to say, respond to the fire is what you're saying, right? And so some people will need help in that area, but that's due to a genetic deficiency which can be addressed is that is that correct at a high level? wanna make sure I'm understanding.
2: Yeah, so yeah it is, and uh, I'm I'm very intrigued by Nerve Two Keep One. Um, and a um, couple of years ago, I was like, support Nerve Two, support Nerve Two, and um, this this is evolving. So I don't want to say this is absolutely correct uh, because we don't fully understand how some of these nutrients support Nerve Two. Uh, but in some of the instances, what the, the purpose is is to create a little bit of mini inflammation, sort of like back to the story of holding the match up to the uh like say there's a building that's on fire. If you hold a match up to the uh, to the sensor, the the uh, it may start to put out the uh, the water. Some of the nutrients that are in some of these products for Nrf two actually have things that stimulate a little bit of inflammation to kick in nerve two. Now, if you're a healthy person, um, and you stimulate your nerve too a little bit. That's probably a very good thing. So some of these products are probably incredibly helpful. Uh, and this is a question, not a statement, because I think more research is needed on this. If a lot of inflammation is going on, is it beneficial to try to stimulate that nerve too? And let me repeat: that's a question, not a statement.
0: Oh, right. So, where, where is that balance? Right. I mean, where is the balance of? too much inflammation and now the you know the pot boiling over you know metaphor that dr rolls uses is that going to be too much inflammation to make you so much worse than you were prior to so there's that balance of figuring out what's going on but it's deeper and i just want to recap what you said also because never mind if you don't have enough nrf2 to create the natural glutathione response in your body when the fire is going off and, the, and the, you know the fire sprinkler is now working you may or may not have that that nrf2 ability but if you do and you are creating glutathione you may not be properly recycling the spent glutathione after it's used. And now that can cause inflammation as well. So there's, this is really a multifaceted piece here that involves your genetic sequencing and that you need to look at what your NRF2 like, how are you, how is your body processing spent glutathione and both of those things can have a drastic impact on your health is what I'm hearing. Right.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, and there's, there's multiple NRF2 stimulators out there. I actually formulated one myself, um, but I'm, I'm cautious in the use of it when there's a lot of inflammation going on. Um, just, and this is just my own personal preference and my own health coaching. Uh, when I do nerf 2 I suggest it one day a week. Um, first, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of hydrogen to knock down the inflammation. Then if they have problems recycling the glutathione, let's do that. Then let's give a little push to nerf 2 maybe one day a week. And that's just my own personal preference. Uh, somebody may differ, and if they have good results with that, that's that's fine. But I'm somewhat cautious with aggressively stimulating nerve two, if there's a lot of inflammation going on. It goes back to the old adage of first do no harm. Uh, so one of my favorite sayings is, "I'd rather be a little too late than too soon." Right, uh, and, and,
0: and but that's that's very appropriate in the Lyme community also because there's this there's just debate that goes on all the time. Do you want to go? really hard and treat Lyme very aggressively, or do you want to go a little safer and ease into it? And we've interviewed people who have gone too aggressively and have had severe setbacks. I mean, one individual in particular who we interviewed in this podcast developed debilitating seizures that he's still dealing with to this day because he went too aggressively with treatment. So I think you're right that there is this debate of, should you go you know full on 100% full throttle or should you step into this because you want to make sure you're not going to make yourself worse by possibly increasing inflammation and again making that pot boil over where now you're really in a bad place health wise right so I think it's an important debate or at least something to think about for people listening to this podcast
2: sure that goes back to my one of my favorite sayings is i think you're a little better you're better off to be a little too late than too soon
0: so i do want to bounce back to you because you are you did talk about a lot of things that were really interesting. So you talked about the, the NADPH, right? And we know you're in your latest ILADS presentation in Madrid in 2019, that your research really focused on how genetic variants and genes related to the production and utilization of NAD plus and NADPH are creating what's now referred to as NADPH steel. And I think Mm -hmm. at the beginning of the podcast, you call that possibly a smoking gun. And and am I correctly making is, is that the right connection there between those two statements? And if so, can you just expand upon that and explain just a little bit in more detail what that means and how it can be helpful to the Lyme community?
2: Sure. So uh, one of my favorite subjects is NADPH. Uh, it's a fascinating um, molecule because, um, and of course, you're hearing a lot of people talk about the importance of NAD. And of course, then it's like now the latest miracle is nicotinamide riboside or nicotinamide mononucleotide. Okay. So the the reason those it's getting that kind of attention. It's because it really is an incredible molecule. Uh, NADH is what's at the top of the electron transport chain to make energy. Uh, NAD plus supports what's called the the, the enzymes that repair your DNA. It's called the PARP enzymes. So they repair your DNA. So when your DNA gets damaged, you need PARP to repair them. That's NAD-dependent. There's enzymes called the sirtuins uh, that are involved, and I'd like to talk about the sirt1 enzyme a little bit later. The uh, the sirtuins are part of the uh, the longevity genes. They are fed by NAD, sirt1 and sirt3, and NAD also makes NADPH. NADPH is what you need to take that oxidized glutathione back to the reduced. Uh, NADPH is what another enzyme uses to take heme into uh, iron. NADPH is a cofactor in making nitric oxide. Um, So I'm a big fan of NADPH. So again, people think, NMN, here we go. This is the cure. Take a lot of this. Now, this is where it gets a little bit complicated, Um, as if it's not already, right? Okay, (laughs) But there's, there's an enzyme called NOX, NADPH oxidase. Okay. And again, let's put a link in there. I did a whole uh, webinar with Dr. Jill Carnahan, and on the YouTube, we show it. I mean, it's a little hard just on audio to explain it, but the NOx enzyme is our friend unless it's not. So NADPH oxidase senses when there's infection, virus, bacteria, something that we need to kill. So when it senses that, it takes oxygen and NADPH to make superoxide, stimulate mast cells, stimulate histamine to kill the pathogen. Now, if we didn't have that, we'd die of infection. We would not be alive if that NOX enzyme didn't purposely create free radicals. So, you know, it's important to say that we spoke earlier about free radicals being bad, but not really. Uh, When used properly, they kill the pathogens. So we can't vilify free radicals too much because they are our friend to kill pathogens. The problem becomes when the free radicals become excessive. Again, that overdoing it. So superoxide and hydrogen peroxide, they are our friends when we have a pathogen to fight. I don't want to vilify them that, you know, this superoxide is the bad guy that needs to be neutralized under all conditions. But it's when it's in excess it's a problem. So, and as we spoke earlier, one of the things we're seeing in many of the conditions is this excess or overreaction of the immune system. So NADPH oxidase or NOx is stimulated by something called interleukin6, IL6, okay, Uh, is um, stimulated by things like mold, Lyme, lipopolysaccharides. And again, I'd encourage people to watch my entire interview with Dr. Jill and IL-6. We don't have time to get into all of it. But when IL-6 is stimulated, it stimulates the NOX enzyme to make superoxide, mast cells, and histamine to kill the pathogen. Is that a good thing? Yes, unless it's overactive. So it uses NADPH to make that superoxide. So What a fascinating molecule, NADPH neutralizes free radicals by recycling glutathione, does all kinds of good things, but it can also be called upon by the NOx enzyme to make free radicals. So what's happening again, back to environmental toxins. Uh, If you watch that video with Dr. Jill, we talk about all the environmental factors that jack up interleukin-6, jack up NOx, so that's why I call it the NADPH steal. NADPH is being stolen, used excessively. I mean, we need the NOX enzyme to do its job. Let me emphasize that. It's not a bad guy, but it's when it's overactive that we have a problem. You know, when, when I train physicians, you know, I say to them, how many of you have been practicing more than 20 years? People raise their hand. How much mass cell activation did you see 20 years ago? It's like barely any how much mast cell activation do you see now? It's like, oh my God, one out of three people that comes in here has mast cells overactivated. So mast cells are white blood cells that are our friends. They kill pathogens unless they're overactive. And again, this, this recurring theme here is overactivity excess primarily due to environmental toxins made worse in those who have genetic predispositions. So the NADPH steel is when that NOx enzyme is overactive, many times by interleukin 6 being overactive, or things like sulfites will cause it. Electromagnetic fields can cause it. There's many things that overstimulate the NOx enzyme. Mast cells is a topic all of its own. We probably don't have time to get into today, but we, you know, many people with Lyme believe they have mast cell activation syndrome, where their mass cells are overactive. So let's go back to, you listen to a podcast on NMN and how it does all these wonderful things. So you think, cool, I'm going to get better now by taking nicotinamide riboside or nicotinamide mononucleotide. Well, if the NOX enzyme is upregulated, you've just given it more fuel to make more inflammation. So I've spoken to doctors who do uh, NAD intravenous and I've said uh, you have people who have wonderful results. It's like, oh my gosh! For some people, this is life changing. You know, it's the best thing they've ever done. And you asked have you ever had people that have had negative reactions? And it's like, well, yeah, yeah, we have that they've gone into this massive inflammatory flare because the NOX enzyme is upregulated. So again, I go back to we can't, you know, say nicotinamide mononucleotide or nicotinamide riboside is the miracle for everybody because it's not. So many times what we have to do is we have to get that NOx enzyme slowed down. Then guess what? Taking NAD is helpful. Same way like glutathione. You got to get it recycling, then you take it. You got to get NOx enzyme slowed down, then you take the NMN. So many times what I'll do is we we created a product called uh, NADPH Protect that looks at many of the pathways that Overstimulates NOx, Take that. Then maybe a couple of weeks later, take nicotinamide mononucleotide one day a week. Then it's helpful. But if you just jump in with massive amounts of NAD, for some people it's miraculous. For other people, it throws them for a loop. Which goes back to its one of my one of my favorite sayings: It's a 3D chess game played underwater. Multiple factors. And uh, when we just try to make cliches of, oh, support nerve 2 for everybody. Take glutamine to heal the gut. Um, do, do this, and it's good for everybody. And my, one of my favorite things that I, that I consult with people on is if somebody tells you everyone should, get very worried.
0: <laughs> Run away. Run. That's our advice. Uh, yeah. But, but Bob, I think you're right. It's truly a double-edged sword. But what I really like about what you're sharing with us is you're giving us, we're geeking out and learning all the specific details, but you're also providing us with hope and a path to success because it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all solution, but there are there is enough information that we have. And there are steps we can take through trial and error to get to a place of health. And like you said, if we have these problems, you have to formulate a supplement that will allow we can take and then put ourselves in a body where and put our bodies in a position where we can take NAD and seek the benefit and not risk the potential negative effects of it through the supplement you created. Right. So I think it's having being armed with this knowledge that you are sharing with us, using that knowledge to not go hardcore and go, you know, full throttle and also figuring out what may or may not be helping us. And a lot of things, like you said earlier, well, glutathione, and I can't tell how many people Bob have told us in this podcast, glutathione made me feel worse. And a lot of people respond and go, you're crazy. Glutathione's amazing. It made me feel great. You just explained why those people felt bad and it's real, right? So there's a lot of science behind this, but we still have a long way to go with, with all this information. I mean, I know MCAS is a whole world in itself, but We hear about mast cell activation syndrome all the time as being what we believe, or and maybe we're wrong, a downstream effect of chronic Lyme or chronic inflammation or systemic, you know, chronic illness. And many people struggle to bounce back from it. The best they can do is find these aids or tools to help them have lessened symptoms, but they really never find a way to truly get to the root cause. And sometimes as they treat Lyme, they do feel better, but MCAS is a really difficult subject for the Lyme community. So if you can at a high level, I know you said it's very deep. Just give us an overview of what your view of MCAS is in you know and in its involvement in the Lyme community and some maybe some some guidance and tips and tricks of things that people can use to have some hope and maybe use these tips to to work towards a better quality of life in their own personal experiences.
2: Sure. Okay. So let's uh, let's again go back to uh, to mast cells. they they're white blood cells, and they are our friends. Okay. Uh, when we're faced with uh, pathogens, they they kick in and kill them. If we didn't have them, life wouldn't exist. I mean, we, we have to have them. The problem becomes they become overactivated. Now, why did they become overactivated? And, you know, there are natural things out there like uh, luteolin, and there's some drugs that doctors give to try to calm it down, which is trying to treat, and then and, and that's okay. But I would rather get to the root cause of what is causing these things to be overactive how do we deal with that? Again, back to, you know, traditional thinking, bad mast cells, calm them down. Well, they're not bad. They're, they're doing what they're supposed to do. They're just getting too many signals and it's overdone. So let's, I'd like to go to a, um, a whole new uh, pathway here. Uh, Bartonella particularly has a gram-negative bacteria called a lipopolysaccharide. And again, we, you know, the body is so fearfully and wonderfully made, we we have an enzyme called TNFA, tumor necrosis factor alpha. And what this guy does, when we are faced with a mycotoxin or a lipopolysaccharide, it says, ooh, we got a problem here. I have to create some inflammation to take care of this thing. Is that a good thing? Sure. Unless it's overactive. Interestingly, there's people that have genetic mutations that makes that TNFA overactive, that it over-response. TNFA stimulates something called NF-kappa B. And by the way, we're going to have a link to the map where people, if, they're, if you're looking at the map, look at the upper right-hand side, you'll see all this. That stimulates something called uh, NF-kappa B. Then that NF-kappa B stimulates mast cells and histamine and just creates this you know, cascade of inflammation. Now, there's a um, there are some nutrients that calm down tumor necrosis factor. And we're in the research phase on that. So I don't want to talk too much about that, but we are looking at some things that tell tumor necrosis factor, thanks for being here to help me, but don't overdo it. Okay. Um, then um, then also there's an enzyme called SIRT1, sirtuin 1. And if you start digging into to the sirtuins, some people say sirtuin some people say sirtuins. Um, they are really involved in uh, longevity because they help make superoxide dismutase. They regulate something called mTOR and autophagy. Uh, but CERT1 particularly calms down NF kappa B um, and the NOx enzyme. So CERT1 calms down that NOx enzyme so that it doesn't overdo it cert one also helps the body make superoxide dismutase remember we talked about superoxide being the free radical superoxide dismutase being the antioxidant it also supports the enzyme that makes nitric oxide which dilates the blood vessels helps us from getting blood clots and keeps blood pressure down does all kinds of good things you can have genetic mutations in cert one but also, I think we're going to look back someday and say, oh, my God, what did we do? High fructose corn syrup inhibits cert one And where do you find high fructose corn syrup? Everywhere. 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, uh, so um, I don't care what your genetics are. I think it's a good idea to eliminate or try to really avoid high fructose corn syrup. But particularly if you've got a mutation in the one evidence-based CERT-1, you really need to be very careful with that.
0: Okay. So it really does all come back to, though, that genetics load the gun and environment pulls the trigger. Everything you're telling us is really consistent with that, that statement you made in the beginning. And I think there are things we can do to overcome the genetics with tools and data and knowledge that you've provided us and will continue to provide us. But also there are ways we can reduce our environmental toxins and our environmental stress as well. And through the combination of those two things, we can overcome illness. I mean, would you agree that's a fair statement, Bob?
2: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's just a little more, uh, more difficult. Uh, I often uh, make the, the analogy, the story that uh, in the early days of our, of our history, uh, coal miners would take a canary with them in a cage. Um, and the reason they did that is because the canaries had very small lungs. And if the oxygen levels went down, the, uh, the, the, the canary would either pass out or die because of lack of oxygen. And it would notice it before the miners. So the miners knew when that canary fell over or died, they better get out of there quickly or they're next. So that's where I'm sure you've heard the analogy the canary in the mine. So people who have, say, for example, a genetic mutation that makes their cert one weaker, they're the canary in the mine. That high fructose corn syrup is going to just pound them down even more. They're not going to be able to calm down these inflammatory factors. They're not going to build their their nitric oxide synthase. Um, so, in my mind, if somebody said to me, Bob, what are some of the most important genetic mutations you see? I'm beginning to believe CERT one mutation is one of the strongest ones uh, because I'm finding people that are really struggling have that weakness in CERT one. Let me also mention CERT one also helps clear histamine, and it also helps inhibit something called mTOR which is the growth of new cells which is important uh, one of my other lyme studies if you look at the, uh, the website uh, we looked at how people with lyme disease had the genetic predisposition for excess mTOR weakened autophagy mTOR is the growth of cells autophagy is the cleaning of the cells um, but anyway back to the cert one the cert one inhibits that mTOR helps clear histamine supports making the antioxidant superoxide dismutase supports healthy circulation and inhibits two of the most serious free radicals creators. So that's why Cert one is related to, uh, to longevity. So getting rid of high fructose corn syrup. And if you start reading labels, it's like, oh my God, it's in crackers. It's in soda. It's in, uh, you know, it's in yogurts. Uh, it's just astonishing. And this only came about in the 1970s um, uh, so prior to that, we did not have high fructose corn syrup. So, uh, so uh, we've really, uh, we, we've really created this monster that's making us all sick. I mean, i am just purely Bob Miller hypothesis, but I think if we didn't have many of these, you know, if we didn't have high fructose corn syrup, if we didn't keep our cell phones on our body, if we didn't give our animals growth hormones, if we weren't polluting the world with plastics, you know, if we weren't giving the animals hormones, um, Lyme disease probably would not nearly be as serious as it is. So
0: so that's you just just answered, but you just answered the question that that is the million dollar question we get asked all the time. Why is chronic Lyme disease more of a problem now than ever? And this podcast has answered that question, Bob. So thank you for that. Whenever, whenever somebody asks that question, we're going to refer them to this podcast because you have brilliantly explained all the reasons why. But I really, what I really like about this podcast, also, I just want to recap because. People listening are probably like, oh my goodness, I need to to understand all of this. But I think at a high level, you're pointing out some specific areas where genetics should be examined from both an internal perspective and an external perspective. And just to kind of just very, very high level for these listeners to coordinate with their doctors and possibly, and we're going to highly recommend do a consultation with you, but iron, glutathione, glutamate. These fats like the omega- omega-3 fatty acids, histamines and MCAS, and NRF2 are all internal factors that need to be looked at when it comes to genetics. And a lot of the external genetic factors you talked about were you know, specifically mold and plastics and EMS and things like that, and are all things that we can have data on from tests that you provide and then have solutions to based on either supplements or lifestyle or, ch- or changes we make in our life to overcome some of these obstacles. And so that is at high levels or anything you want to add there, Bob, to give our listeners some hope and and you know maybe uh, take be able to take a, a deep breath and say wow maybe i can feel better
2: oh absolutely and we do have uh success all the time you know obviously if anybody says they have 100 percent success you know they're feeding a line uh but some of that comes to uh to compliance as well and there's more things we need to learn and if we can i'd like to go down a path of i believe what is our, our most important discovery that we've not uh, done any literature on yet uh, and that is uh, something called rantes, rantes my gut instinct tells me that this is possibly one of the big smoking guns now what a strange name rantes it stands for regulated upon activation normal t-cells expressed and secreted and it's like what the heck is that okay but uh what it does it promotes the survival now listen to this promotes the survival of immune inflammatory cells from the bloodstream into tissues in other areas of injury and infection. Now, is ranty's a bad thing? No, it, again, it's in there in our body to when they're, when we're faced with a pathogen, it says, we're gonna throw everything we got at it. We're gonna call out the Army, Navy, Air Force, air, sea, everything. We're gonna you know, do everything we can to kill this pathogen. But again, the problem becomes when it's excessive. So uh, during this year, we're actually going to uh, to do a study. I'm very fortunate; a um, a gentleman who has the financial resources is going to fund a study and look at rantes and other things in the chronic Lyme. Uh, If anybody's following uh, some of the research on uh, COVID, um, Dr. Bruce Patterson is studying the long haul COVID people and finding that they have high levels of this rantes. Uh, We're going to hopefully do a study here that looks at are chronic Lyme people high in this rantes? So the reason that's so important um, is because if this is excessive, this could be one of the reasons why people are suffering because rantes will stimulate histamine and stimulate mast cells. And again, those are some of the commonalities we see in people that are, that are struggling. Now that pathway that I first described there of the, of the mold or the Lyme creating the mast cells, that goes down a pathway that stimulates the the rantes. Um, Also, there's multiple factors that will stimulate interleukin-6. Again, I would encourage you to watch the video I did with Dr. Jill Carnahan uh, on interleukin-6. Just in simple terms, there's something called angiotensin 2 that the body makes and that will stimulate rantes. And I don't know if we have to go down that pathway. Um, matter of fact, this uh, this uh, this next week in middle of March here, I'm doing a um, a webinar with Dr. Jill that'll be on her Facebook and then her lime and then her YouTube, and we can add that later, um, where we're going to go through and show this all the multiple ways that uh, the rantes gets uh, stimulated, and and the final way it gets stimulated is if um, mold or some other toxins cause a polyunsaturated fatty acids called arachidonic acid to come down a pathway that stimulates it. Now, I alluded to this earlier. What we're finding is that many people who are struggling are not using their fats properly. Now, let's talk about omega-3 and omega-6s. 30, 40 years ago, we had a one-to-one ratio of omega-6 to omega-3. SAD, or standard American diet, for some individuals, that omega-6 to omega-3 is now 20 to 1. And, you know, we have real, again, the canola oils and all of our processed foods and everything like that. So that's bad for all of us. But if you have genetic weakness in the enzymes called fatty acid desaturase or ELOVL2, we even have more difficulty turning those omega-3s into something called protections and resolvins that neutralize all this free radical damage. So again, I go back to the way we're processing our foods, the omega-6s. Um, interestingly, uh, you know, the Mediterranean diet seems to have a lot of benefits. It's high in olive oil, and olive oil helps uh, that process of uh, not making the uh, the, the ranties. Uh, again, if you look at our charts or maybe listen to the webinar with Dr. Jill, uh, it's a little complex just to talk through it, but when you see the charts, you see how olive oil can be helpful. And, uh, but many of us, if we look at our food intake, uh, the omega-6s, the canola oils, the, you know, the, the vegetable oils, uh, we're just eating them in mass. We're not eating a lot of fish. And another component as part of that 3D chess game, uh, played underwater.
0: So, Bob, I just want to follow up. So did you say it was a 20 to 1 ratio now of omega-3s to 6s? Is that what you said? No, 20 to 1, 6 to
2: to 3.
0: 20 to 1, 6 to 3. Okay, thank you for clarifying that. Now, that's not everybody,
2: but for the person who eats junk food, you know, doesn't eat organic, you know, has a really poor diet, they can have a 20 to 1, 6 to 3, and it should be 1 to 1.
0: So good things to do. But why is that bad, Bob? I'm sorry to interrupt again, but so what, what? what is omega-3 fatty acids and what are omega-6 fatty acids and why is it bad to have a 20 to 1 ratio of omega-6s to omega-3s?
2: Sure. I mean, we need all the fats um, and, you know, not all omega-6s are bad, but primarily many of the omega-6s are pro-inflammatory because they make something called arachidatic acid that will stimulate inflammation. But the omega-3s, uh, when properly gone through the steps, they make something called protectins and resolvins. And those are very pro-anti-inflammatory. So that's why there's the benefits of eating fish and the fish oils. Uh, so, but unfortunately, if we have too many omega-6s, it actually uses up the enzymes that the omega-3s need and then, if we have genetic mutations in those FADS enzymes, or a genetic mutation in the uh, elovl 2 we have difficulty even turning those good fish oils into protectins and resolvins. Uh, there's a couple of companies now that are uh, that are actually making supplements that actually have those uh, those as those uh, they're, they're called SPMs, and they actually have those protectins and resolvents. So. Again, just observing, and this will probably be one of our research projects in the future. Uh, are people with chronic Lyme more likely to have mutations in their FADS enzymes? But even aside from that, if dietarily they're eating junk food, they're getting more of those pro-inflammatory omega sixes, and that's part of what we've done. We've, you know, when, when you look at our diet from seventy-five years ago to the diet today, dramatically different yet another contributing factor. Uh, I mean, we have created the perfect storm by what we've done.
0: Again, why today chronic Lyme is so much more prevalent than ever before, but I do wanna circle back and I'm probably gonna say it wrong. It was rant, Rantes?
2: Rantes, mm-hmm.
0: R-A-N-T-E-S. So you said that Rante's promotes survival of inflammatory substances when there's pathogens present, which is a good thing, right? You want that because you want to be able to address these pathogens, but the problem is when it doesn't get turned off or it's excessive. And that seems to be the case with many of the things we're talking about here with these genetic deficiencies. So, you know, you keep talking about a problem and a solution. We have these genetic variants or mutations, and then we, we identify them and we have a solution, whether it's dietary or a supplement. So with this, with this Rante's problem, what is the solution? Do you have a supplement to help overcome that? Do you have a a solution or is that something that's still in the works to look at how to, how to address this?
2: Yeah. The the Rante's supplement uh, is uh, now being, being made. We're getting the ingredients and we're, we're putting it together. And as good as that might be um, that that's almost a, uh, you know, medical approach of Rante's is high. Let's knock it down. So I see this supplement has something, it's going to have a in it, strawberry extract, and hops, those are the three ingredients that there's clinical evidence that that calms down Rantes. And that's fine, but we, we don't wanna just say, oh, we'll take this supplement that knocks down Rantes and we're done. So I said, there's there's three pathways that make excess Rantes. One is through a stimulation of interleukin-6. Again, I'd encourage people to watch the video that we have the link to. Um, the other one is when tumor necrosis factor gets upregulated and that can be from say somebody's got uh, clostridia in the gut. That could be a contributing factor. Um, Lipopolysaccharides, gram-negative bacteria, and we found that Bartonella has that gram-negative bacteria. Um, Then uh, the third pathway is um, when arachidonic acid gets pulled out. There's an enzyme called PLA2, and PLA2 brings arachidonic acid out of the cell membrane And it is stimulated by things like superoxide, peroxynitrite, calmodium from EMF. It's inhibited by cortical steroids from our adrenals. Now, one of my favorite jokes is, how do you know if you have adrenal fatigue? And the answer is you live in America. So so the the adrenal glands make cortical steroids that are anti-inflammatory. And I'm sure people listening to this have heard of the term POTS, where they stand up and they get dizzy. Okay or they'll see sparkles, or they'll actually lose vision for a couple of seconds. Well, that's because their their adrenal glands are just tuckered out. Now, there might be other factors in POTS. I'm not going to say that's the only one, but there's usually an adrenal fatigue part of that because the adrenals need to make cortisol. Cortisol knocks down histamine. The cortical steroids are needed to calm down this PLA too. So if you've got tired adrenals, you're making superoxide, you're charging your cell phone next to you, or you sit next to a, a router, or a uh, you know something that generates the uh, the uh, the EMF, um, that PLA2 becomes overactive. And that's why I'm a big fan of measuring. And you can do this through a finger prick. You can just do a finger prick. There's a company called OmegaQuant. Uh, I think people can even go to the company and do it on their own. They don't even have to do it through a practitioner and you'll get a report back of your arachidonic acid ratio to omega-3s, your omega-3s and omega-6s, and and you can actually see where those those levels are. And uh, I am seeing that many individuals that are struggling, their arachidonic acid to omega-3 ratio is way off. So that's one of the areas we're looking at, how do we calm down this PLA2 that again is being overstimulated by things like mold and other environmental factors. And then it just goes down a pathway to stimulate something called thromboxin A2, which can be measured in the urine that activates platelets that stimulates the rantes. And if you look at the chart, you can see it. Listen to my uh, podcast that I'm doing with Dr. Jill, March 13th. We'll be showing charts, and it's so much easier to see when, when you have a visualization. But I believe that's what's happening, that multiple factors are also jacking up rantes, that stimulates more mast cells, more histamine. The histamine stimulates the rantes and we're on another merry-go-round. So truly
0: it's a domino effect here though, Bob, right? I mean, so I asked you a question of, Hey, is there a supplement? And your answer was yes. We're developing a supplement, but that's really a band-aid solution. You need to go deeper. You need to unravel this and figure out at a higher level. We'll go back upstream. What is causing this to be here downstream, and then address it at a higher level. And I think that's really important. Otherwise, it's just going to be something we're going to be on forever, just to get symptomatic relief and never address the root cause, right? So, but you keep bringing up, um, you keep bringing up, I think, Babesia, and you're saying it's a gram, a gram negative, and I'm probably going to butcher what you said.
2: No, Bartonella. B- Bartonella. I'm sorry,
0: Bartonella. So talk to us about Bartonella, because I think you mentioned Bartonella when you're specifically speaking about histamine and MCAS, and then you brought up Bartonella again when you're talking about Ranthi. So how is Bartonella different than Lyme disease, and what are the uh, maybe additional complications people should worry about with Bartonella that they traditionally wouldn't be aware of?
2: Well, I don't claim to be an expert on this, so I'll, uh, I'll just say this is a uh, sort of a bit of a novice understanding. But, but the Bartonella does have a, um, a gram-negative, is a gram-negative bacterium that lipopolysaccharides and that's what stimulates the tumor necrosis factor which begins that whole cascade of nox enzyme histamine mast cells so i uh, i'll be honest i, I don't uh, have a deep understanding of that but we've we've seen the literature that that's what it is and this is the pathway that it stimulates
0: so Bob, i know we've had you on for quite a while and i and i we appreciate your time is there anything else that we that you want to discuss, or that could be beneficial to the Lyme community that we haven't discussed already that you want to bring to this podcast?
2: No, I think that's it. I mean, we've covered a lot of ground here. And, uh, you know, just to summarize it, uh, it's very, very complex. There isn't a single solution. It's like, oh, what should I take for this? Um, We've got to really step back and look at which pathways are overstimulated. As we said, for some people, iron might be 80% of the problem. For other people, recycling their glutathione might be 80 percent of the problem for other people it may be that they're um, I, I see some individuals that have what are called homozygous mutations on all their fads enzymes it's like oh my god you know your biggest issue is that you're not utilizing your fats to knock this down um for other people they've got the cert one mutation uh or their diet is just filled with high fructose corn syrup um so uh, or they um you know they, they didn't realize it but they're uh you know, they have their cell phone on their body all day. They they, they charge it next to them. They've got their Wi-Fi right next to them. They're sitting right next to a hotspot. Um, all of those things combined. So if somebody's looking for a simple answer, I don't think there is one. But the good news is, as we continue research, uh, we're going to find, you know, the, the pathways. And that's why I said for the doctors who want to do this, this is not for the faint of heart. Uh, you just don't, uh, you know, do the genetic test and say okay, because I've had this happen. Doctors do it, and it's like, well, now Bob, what do I do? Well, did you take the 13 modules that train you how to do this? So, um, so there is a learning curve, and uh, for somebody who's looking for a simple solution, uh, this isn't what they want to do. Uh, but for the health professional who wants to really help, willing to do homework, study, uh, they'll they'll really be enlightened and, and get the tools that they uh, that they need.
1: So, Bob, talk to us about what the future is for your company. You said that uh, right now it is uh, not for the faint of heart because you need to uh, have a practitioner who's interested in doing a lot of work in order to be able to interpret the data that you're developing. Well, this dashboard that you're creating for us, um, you uh, is there? Is there AI in the future? Is there, uh, you know, a dashboard that will be more understandable for practitioners so that they don't have to go through? I guess, a set, uh, essentially a second uh, MD or PhD before they can use this tool to help us in, uh, in the community?
2: Yeah, that's that's the feedback I get from the doctors. It's like, Bob, you are on the cutting edge. This is the solution, but I don't have the time or the desire to learn all this. So um, I'm, I'm meeting with my computer programmers over the next uh, couple of weeks. And part of our goal is to how do we make an executive summary that kind of takes all the data, you know, that looks at the genetics. Well, I'm a big fan of urine organic acids, looks at the labs, looks at the symptoms and tells the doctor, you know what, um, you might want to do some testing of the iron levels and see where they are. Let's do, let's look at the red blood cells. Um, let's look at the, uh, the fatty acids, um, and then put logic in. So, uh, we're, we're making the software so that, uh, we say if this genetic and this lab and this symptom say this on a report. It's going to take me months, if not years, to finalize that. Uh, but we're trying to take all the knowledge we've learned over the years, give it to the doctor in a report. Because again, that's the feedback we get. This is incredible, but I, I can't learn this.
1: So that's no. Nope. Bob, my hope is that we would ultimately get to the point where it's not just uh, available at the practitioner level, but it's also available at the patient level, right? Because one of the things that, you know, we see repeatedly is that the average uh, car owner knows more about the health of his or her or their car than they know about their own health because we have this dashboard that lights up as soon as we turn on our ignition. But we don't have any of that available to us, um, you know, as as humans who should have a dashboard available to us. So my hope is that you know, as you're as you're going down this path of of uh, developing your company, that you'll develop it to the point where we won't need practitioners to be either willing to do the hard work necessary to help us to interpret this or to have the, you know, have the tool available to them that they will, they will need. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, that struck me as we're, as we're winding down here is uh, I, years ago, I I actually read a book entitled the abs diet. And um, one of the things that the, the author of uh, his name is David Zenzenko recommended is literally the first step is to pull high fructose corn syrup out of your diet. And uh, before that, I never read labels. So I started reading labels and almost everything I had in my cupboard was uh, had high fructose corn syrup uh, in it. But even more concerning was in most cases, it was the first ingredient. Literally, it was the highest ingredient of everything I was eating. So when when you know when our diet has shifted to the point where you know we're making the case that we're substituting sugars positively with this with this um, poison, um, and then we have to work really. Hard. I mean, it took me uh, uh, to, it took a lot of work for me to find products that didn't have high fructose corn syrup in it. At all, it was not easy, and there were very few um, products at the time when you know when we were doing that research. I think like the Weight Watchers products, for example, were one of the one of the few products where you could get um, you know crackers that didn't have high fructose corn syrup in it as the first you know as the first um, ingredient. So you know we we really we really are poisoning ourselves. We are really swimming in I think you were calling that toxic soup, and it and it really is a lot of work to to tease out. All of these poisons that you know that we're being fed in you know in the basic American diet, and even when you think you're 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 you know you're cooking at home and you're cooking healthily, that uh, you know that you're avoiding these toxins, and you're really not. So, um, so Bob, I, I can't thank you enough for sharing your you know your your brilliant work with uh, the folks in our community. And if we could, uh, as part of winding down here, could you share with us um, uh, how folks can get in touch with uh, your company? where you know so that they can use it uh use your resources themselves rather than having to hope that they have a practitioner who would be either willing or able to do the heavy lifting to get give them the benefit of the uh, great work you're doing
2: sure well the easiest way is uh look at our website tolhealth.com t is in tom o is in oscar l is in larry tolhealth.com our contact information is there. Uh, and also, we can put a link here in in the podcast uh, to go to the website where we do list other practitioners who do this. Because uh, obviously, I can't see uh, everybody who wants to do this. Uh, so there are other practitioners that are trained, and uh, and you can uh, get that uh, get that list there. And then, if there's any, I, I imagine you probably have health practitioners who listen to this. Uh, you know, go to the website. You can uh, get a free trial of the software, free trial of the uh, the modules, and uh, you know, see if this is. Uh, for you, but it's for the doctor who, um, who's willing to do a little bit of work. You know, it's not just a, it's not just a plug and play. Yes.
1: So now again, for the, for the patient community that listens to our podcast, you, you indicated that you also have, um, regular, um, informational, uh, seminars. Uh, can you share with us when you have the, the seminars and, and, and when those materials are made available? Sure. To the, general uh,
2: the, the the seminars are for health professionals only. So I training the, the doctors and okay. I do webinars every other weekend, but again, they're for Doctors training them. Um, we we've debated about how much information we want to give out to the uh, to the to the public, and because this is so complex, uh, people become overwhelmed quickly, or they become scared. You know, they look at their genetic report, and it's like, oh my God, this is terrible. And it's like, no, it's not. It's not that bad. Um, uh, and because the uh, we, we just don't want to scare anybody or have them do things that are uh, inappropriate. For now, we're we're having the uh, is go through health professionals, whether, or whether they get like a simplified version, I've kicked that around that maybe there's a simplified version that says, um, gluten isn't a good idea for you. And you know, I'd probably be remiss if I didn't mention gluten, uh, because there gluten isn't good for anybody uh, as it stands now. But there are people who have genetic mutations that make them even more susceptible. And uh, and gluten will stimulate uh, one of the inflammatory enzymes that we didn't talk about, inducible nitric oxide synthase. So uh, for some people, they have to watch uh, gluten as well. Now, because I've told them, many people that said, I have gluten in America and I get sick. I went to Italy and I could eat gluten and I was just fine because they didn't have as much glyphosate. That's a whole nother, that's a whole nother story, the, what the glyphosate might be, uh, might be doing to us.
1: Bob Miller, thank you for joining us on the Tick Bootcamp podcast. My pleasure to be here.
0: Thank you for listening to our Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Bob Miller. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Bob Miller, please visit his website at tolhealth.com. Again, T-O-L-H-E-A-L-T-H dot Second, if you've enjoyed this episode of our Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a TickBite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com to view our blueprint. Please note, we appreciate any input or improvements you'd like to share with us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our community, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, on social media, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews you share with us. And as a final note, if you'd like to search for a specific podcast, either looking for a guest in a particular state or country, or looking for a specific keyword like doxycycline or rifampin or antibiotics or herbs, please visit our website at tickbootcamp.com search, and you'll be able to find the podcast you're looking for. Thank you, as always, for listening.